Good morning. If you've got your Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis is where we're going to be, Genesis 2. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, probably find a Bible that's in one of the chair racks there. And uh, Genesis is the very first book in the Old Testament, which is at the very beginning. So if you just move your way forward, you should find chapter 2 pretty quickly. If you don't own a Bible and you would like to, you may take that one home with you. We would be glad for you to have it. Bottled lightning is how a psychologist named William James described the fast-paced American mindset. That should come as no surprise to any of us because we are constantly moving from one thing to another. The paces of our lives could be described sometimes as frenetic, as we have work to do, and then we have to get home and quickly change our clothes so that we can go somewhere else for the night, so that we can get everybody to their practice, all the kids to their practices, us to our meetings, so we can get home and do our homework for the night, so we can get up the next day and do it all over again. And when the weekend comes, it's no different. Our paces are just as frenetic oftentimes on the weekends as they are on the weekdays. William James said that we might be tempted to blame this mindset on, in his words, the extraordinary progressiveness of our life, the hard work, the railroad speed, the rapid success, and all the other things we know so well by heart. But James suggested that the real culprit was actually much simpler than any of those things. James said that the real culprit to this this frenetic mindset, this bottled lightning mindset, was simply bad habits. He says these bad habits, which have been caught from the so, these are bad habits which have been caught from the social atmosphere, kept up by tradition, and idealized by many as the admirable way of life, are the last straws that break the American camel's back the final overflowers of our measure of wear and tear and fatigue. Do you feel that wear and tear and fatigue? One of the interesting things about William James is that he wrote those words in the year 1899. What would he think of us now? Now that we are in a constant 24-hour news cycle, Now that we all have our own forms of transportation, now that we are globally connected to every single person that we wish to be connected to and every single event that we wish to be connected to throughout the entire world all the time, what would he think of our lifestyle now? A recent study in the Harvard Business Review found that the average American sees busyness as a status symbol. One of the things that this review noted was that in in years past, uh, a person who wasn't busy, that was the ultimate sign of status. Because if if you are not busy, it means you're so wealthy, you don't have to work. But now, the exact opposite is is a sign of, uh, is a status symbol. The fact that we are so busy working so hard, chasing our financial dreams and whatever else they may be, 
In fact, ask someone if they've had a busy week. If that person were to say, no, it was actually pretty good. You're laughing because you would laugh. (laughs) What's wrong with you? That your life is not jam-packed from one thing to another. We think that a person who hasn't had a busy week is either crazy or just lazy. In fact, if you didn't have a busy week and somebody said, huh, busy week, right? And you, you might be tempted to say, yeah, yeah, super, super busy. Lots of things happening. I was very busy. Because to say otherwise might seem to, to communicate to that person, yeah, I don't really have any hopes or dreams. I've got nothing going on, nothing that I'm working for. So we would rather lie than say something like that, which is telling, isn't it? We are a people who are desperate for rest, but hopelessly addicted to work. This need for rest is something that we don't feel only in our personal lives. The events of this past week, the events of this past month, the things that are going on in the world also remind us that we live in a world that is not at rest. We live in a world where we can, where we can see and where we can feel and we, where we can sense the instability where you log into your bank account this week and there are messages that pop up saying, hey, don't worry about, about things. We've got, we've got financial guidance for you. I'm not really sure why they were telling me that because uh, I don't really have that much to lose, but they wanted me to know <laughs> my many investments were safe. <laughs> but... But we feel that. We feel that instability. The Bible tells us that the last days are going to be days where there are wars and rumors of wars. And whenever we see the injustices that, ha- that play themselves out across the world stage, we wish that we lived in a world that was at rest when we live in a world that is at war. Rest is the topic that we want to examine this morning in Genesis. I've said before that human beings are the pinnacle of the creation week. We are the only beings that God has made that are described as being made in His image. We are saved for last in the explanation of the things that are created, and we have the most space devoted to us Though we are the, the, the pinnacle in some ways of the creation week, we are not the final thing that occurs because like any good week, this one has a seventh day. And the events of this seventh day are described for us in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2. If you're there, I would like for us to read those verses together. Here's what the Word of God says in Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. Thus heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day 
and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. It's important for us to note when we read the language of God resting on the seventh day that God did not rest because He was tired. When the six days of creation were over, did not, God did not kick back in a heavenly recliner and, and run His hand across His brow because He had put in a long week of work. Nor did it take Him six days to create in the sense that it had to take Him six days to create. Like it may take me six days to put a piece of Ikea furniture together. I'm not dragging it out across six days. It takes that long. But that's not where God's at. Creating was effortless for Him. When God rested on the seventh day, when the Bible tells us that He rested on the seventh day, it's, it's telling us that He is simply ceasing from His labor. Now, there are two unique features of this seventh day that I want to highlight to you briefly this morning, that make this day unique. The first feature of this day that makes it unique is the fact that the Bible says that God blesses this day and He makes it holy. There are only uh, a couple of other times in the whole creation narrative where the Bible talks about God blessing something. In verse 22 of chapter 1, He blesses the birds and the fish and commands them to multiply. In verse 28, I think, He blesses humanity and commands them to multiply. Those are the only other times in this stretch where he he uses that language. But here on day seven, the Bible says that God blesses a day. And not only does he bless this day, but the Bible says that he makes this day holy. He sets this day apart as unique and special. There's another unique feature of this day. You'll notice as you read through the creation story that the same language is used day after day over and over again, or very similar language is used over and over again. So there's a, there's a, a, a rhythm that we get used to experiencing as we move through each day because of these repeated words and phrases. And one of the, one of the closing pieces of rhythm in each one of these days is the fact that each one closes by saying there was evening and there was morning the first day, or there was evening and there was morning the second day. And it says this for all the other days except the seventh day. The Bible does not give that refrain that we're used to seeing on the seventh day, which should at the very least alert us. There's been a pattern that's bared and carried through that's been broken There's something that is trying to be told to us here. Now, what we're going to see here is that there is a pattern in this week intentionally set by God for humans. What we have here is God completing His work and then entering into His rest. He completes His work and He enters into His rest. Rest. Now, the fact that he has completed his work and entered in his rest does not mean that God will never do a single thing again. That's not what the Bible's trying to tell us. And in fact, when Jesus is having an argument with some people in John chapter 5 over the Sabbath, one of the things he says is, My Father is working even until now, and I am working. Okay, so the Bible's not saying that, that God never does anything again. 
but that he has entered into a state of rest, having fulfilled his creative task. Now, we see as we're reading through Genesis 1 and 2 and even 3 together that humans are created in God's image and likeness. We are God's representatives on earth. We reflect God on earth, and we follow God's pattern that He sets for us. We do this in a couple ways. We talked a little bit about this last week, but there are two aspects of human purpose that Genesis 1 talks about. Do you remember what those two aspects of human purpose are? One of them is that we are to be fruitful and multiply. So God's vision for humanity in the earth that He has created is for humanity to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the whole earth with His image. That's, that's God's stated desire. He wants the, the whole earth to be filled with His image bearers for His glory. In fact, one of the repeated refrains throughout the Bible is the fact that God's desire is for the earth to be filled with His glory. The earth is filled with His glory, but one of the way God desires for His glory to be expressed on this earth is by image bearers who look like Him and reflect Him and bring Him that glory. So that's one aspect of our task. The other aspect of our task was to to have dominion over the earth, to subdue the earth, to cultivate it. And so just as God takes that which is formless and empty, and we see Him throughout the week of creation forming spaces and filling those spaces... In a creaturely way, we are to expand God's presence in the earth through the multiplication of image bearers, and then we are to to, uh, follow God in His work in a creaturely way, where we form and we cultivate and we subdue and we harness and we use the resources that God has given us for His glory. That's the task that the original human beings were given. But there was no reason to believe that this task that the original human beings were given was an eternal one. It's a a task that can be completed. And God gives the first humans six days to labor, followed by a seventh of rest. And that would be a weekly reminder that there is a future rest coming when their labor was complete. But of course, there's a problem. God not not only gives humanity a task, but He gives humanity a test. God commands them that there is one particular thing that they are by no means to do, which is the one particular thing we decided to do. We disobey God, we rebel against God, And the curse for humanity's rebellion against God and their failure to to pass this test directly impacts their ability to fulfill the task. So they've been given the task to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to have dominion over it and subdue it. Now, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because there's no way to not get ahead of ourselves, but, but Genesis 3 talks about humanity's disobedience the, the world and humans are corrupted by sin, and part of the curse directly impacts the task. 
the very thing, the very two tasks they were be, they were given to do, are the very two areas that the curse infects. Our ability to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over the earth has not been completely lost, but our ability to truly and finally fulfill the task has, if the last several millennia are not proof enough of that. So, there is a sense in which humanity is no longer able to enter into God's rest. So as the storyline of the Bible unfolds, what we are going to see is a theme woven through that whole storyline of a centuries-long quest for rest, the rest that's lost at the beginning. This is the, the, the first three verses of Genesis 2, and this description of the seventh day is not some throwaway detail in the storyline of the Bible. It's not like a, huh, okay, well, let's move on. This is at the very core of the Bible's storyline, and this quest for rest is woven through it. And what I'd like to do in the time that we have remaining this morning is just briefly sketch that, that and, and follow that thread through the storyline. We could really get into the weeds, but I'm going to try to stay, I'm going to try to hover over the, over the top to just paint the the broad contours for you. First of all, we're going to do this along two lines. First of all, I want you to see the quest for rest in the Old Testament. The quest for rest in the Old Testament. So in the years that follow, humanity's curse and the corruption that enters into the world because of sin, we see the wheels, as you used to start reading, you see the wheels completely coming off this thing. In fact, it seems like creation itself is coming apart at the seams. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, we have God considering whether the whole world is just going to be completely destroyed and wiped out. But Genesis 6 tells us that there is a person who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that person who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord is named Noah, as many of you probably know. But do you know what Noah's name means? Noah's name comes from a Hebrew verb that means to rest, which means when we arrive at Noah and we see creation just splitting apart at the seams and when we see this, this consideration by God of whether this is just going to totally be wiped out, we see a person named Noah, whose name comes from a word for rest, and we say, hmm, I wonder if this is going to be the person that brings rest, that restores rest to this broken creation. And we see interesting things happen. We see Noah and a few of his family members being protected, taken into an ark. We see all kinds of animals being brought in so that When the world is both judged and washed clean and the waters recede, the mission can be carried out of being fruitful and multiplying and having dominion over this earth. And so at the very beginning, as we're reading through this, we're thinking, okay, there's a fresh start. The wheels come off pretty quickly again, as they always do. Noah and his descendants are not able to bring about this state of rest. 
The next time we encounter these ideas of Sabbath and rest are in Exodus chapter 16. God's people Israel have been, have been miraculously delivered from Egypt. They've been complaining that they don't have anything to eat. God is miraculously providing manna for them. And when He gives them bread from heaven, He tells them, you can gather this bread, enough of what you need for each day, except the sixth day. The sixth day, gather as much as you need, not only for that day, but for the next day, for the day that day is a Sabbath. Then we see, and I I know I'm moving forward at, at breakneck speed, but then we see the keeping of this Sabbath enshrined in the fourth commandment. And in the fourth commandment, the fourth of the Ten Commandments, the language that's used is the same language that we just read about in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3 of Genesis. Let me read that for you. Exodus 20, 8 to 11. This is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Recognize some of that language? That's some of the language that we just read about in Genesis chapter 2. All right. As this theme of rest, okay, we just begin to sketch this out a little bit. As this theme of rest continues to be be developed in the Old Testament, we're going to find that this idea of rest is bigger than resting one day out of seven. And one of the reasons we know that that what God has in mind here is, is much bigger than just resting one day in seven is because this rest is associated with a place. Rest in the Old Testament becomes associated with a place. And that shouldn't surprise us that rest is associated with a place. Because what was God's original goal for humanity? It had to do with a place, right? Fill this place with image bearers who are subduing and having dominion over this place. So it shouldn't surprise us that rest would become associated with a place. What happens is, as God's people are headed to the promised land, they've experienced all sorts of miraculous things. God has has opened up seas and, and miraculously given them food and protected them from their enemies and led them by a pillar of cloud at day and a pillar of fire by night. He's done all these amazing things. And then they are about to enter into the promised land and they send a bunch of guys on a recon mission who come back and say, yeah, I don't no, we're not going to be able to do this. Too much. They've seen all that and it's just, it's too much. We can't do it. And God is angry with the people, and He promises that those, all those living over a particular age are not going to be able to enter into the promised land. And so they begin 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So when a psalm writer in Psalm 95 looks back at that event, he describes it 
not just as a failure to enter the land, he describes it as a failure to enter into God's rest. I want you to see that. Psalm 95, verses 10 and 11 say this, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We're not thinking thematically. We might just think that 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 would finish with land. They won't enter the land. But the land is associated with God's rest. Okay, so zip, 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 fast forward. DVD skips the chapter. We're 40 years ago on. People are about to go into the wilderness again, or not the wilderness, but the promised land again. Lessons learned. Moses is about to pass off the scene. He's passing the torch to Joshua, his successor. They're about to go in and take the land. And in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua says this in verse 13. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Okay? You seeing that? Rest, land are linked up. It's a place of rest that God is promising to them. By the time we get to the end of the book of Joshua, the Bible tells us in 23.1 that they have, have, uh, the Lord has given rest to Israel. The problem is that rest is very short-lived because if you've got biblical knowledge, what's the book that follows Joshua? Judges. Now, I preached through Judges several years ago. Some of you might, might remember this. Who am I kidding? I'd like to just make me feel good and tell me you remember. Tell me that you at least remember I preached through Judges at one time. That'll, that'll, that's all I need. Okay, there we go. We got that. We can agree on that baseline. One of the repeated refrains in Judges after a, the people fall into sin, they're, they're, they're disobeying God, they're, they're bowing down to false idols, they uh, experience the consequences of their sins, they cry out to God, He provides them with a judge, and the end of that story of each judge says, and the land had rest for a particular amount of years. And then the cycle repeats itself. And then the cycle repeats itself. And then the cycle repeats itself. The ending of the book of Judges is so horrific, I had to send an email to our church family saying, I'm going to have to talk about this in veiled terms because there's kids present. That's what we're dealing with. And then we, then we start walking through the years of the monarchy. We see King David who achieves a measure of stability in the kingdom. He is great but he's not allowed to build a temple, a place of rest for God, because he's a man of war. That that responsibility falls to his son Solomon. Solomon's name carries the idea of peace, which is our rest idea again. But what does Solomon do? By the end of Solomon's reign, he is not following God as he once had. And what we see in the remainder of, of the nation Israel's history is this cycle over and over again of king after king after king leading the people away from God, the people disobeying God, until finally the Assyrians and the Babylonians show up and ship everybody out. 
Now, we've talked about this before, but the, this idea that, that the people are deported from their land and taken to another place, this, that now you can see as we're talking about this idea of rest, why this is such a significant idea, why this is such a significant thing. They're not just losing their home address. This this home address is connected to God's promises of rest for His people that were lost in the third chapter of Genesis, but promised and modeled by God in His rest. This is significant stuff that is happening. And even when the people do return to the land, they're living in a land that they're allowed to live in and that they don't own. They're under Roman rule. That's the quest for rest in the Old Testament. But now we move into the New Testament. I want us to see the quest for rest in the New Testament. When Jesus appears on the scene, what's one of the biggest things that he's fighting about with the religious leaders? The Sabbath. It's a constant point of contention. Jesus is criticized for allowing his disciples to pick heads of grain as they're walking through a field because they don't have any food. Jesus deliberately heals a variety of different people in a variety of different ways on the Sabbath day. It's recorded by all the gospel writers in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them talk about this happening. It's a, it's a continual point of contention. And one of the ways that Jesus responds to that criticism, or his, his two responses to that criticism, which are found throughout the Gospels, they're found in Mark chapter 2, verses 20, 27 and 28, one of the things that he tells them is that, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And when Jesus tells these people that are criticizing him, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, he's not saying, I'm God, so I can do whatever I want on the Sabbath. I can break it if I feel like it. That's not, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, when when he says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, is, is, is that he is the one who has the authority to properly interpret what one may do on the Sabbath, and they have completely missed the point. The Sabbath is the idea that there is a coming wholeness that's going to be achieved in creation. There is a rest that is going to come And what better way to demonstrate that coming rest, that coming wholeness in creation than healing people? He also tells the people that are are criticizing him. He reminds them that the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. In other words, he's telling them the Sabbath is meant to be a gift to humanity. You've turned it into a burden. Then, so we we see Jesus interacting with people about the Sabbath on numerous occasions throughout the Gospels. Then we come to the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of everything the Old Testament looked toward. And one of the interesting things that we see in the book of Hebrews is that the rest that Adam failed to achieve. Remember, Adam has been, giving a, been giving, has been given a task. He's been given a test. He represents humanity, and he fails and plunges humanity into sin. We are, in many ways, reaping the, the, the lack of rewards from Adam's failure. 
The Bible talks about this in the book of Romans in verse 15, which we don't, or chapter 15, which we don't have time to get into this morning. But the rest that Adam and God's people failed to attain through their disobedience, Hebrew tells us, Hebrews tells us that Jesus achieves through his perfect obedience. And the writer of Hebrews reflects on that in chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 4, in verse 3, after this long discussion of talking about the, the work of Christ, he declares this in Hebrews 4, 3, For we who have believed enter into that rest. If you don't know anything about the Old Testament, you run across something like that and say, oh, that's cool, and nothing more. But there's all kinds of freight and expectation and hope behind that statement that stretches all the way back to God's original intent for humanity that's expressed in Genesis chapter 2. There's those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, have in a very real sense entered into the Sabbath rest that God has promised and that has been restored through the faithfulness of Jesus. That's amazing. You possess a rest right now that is the, the culmination of Old Testament promises that God has made to His people that are never truly achieved until Jesus comes, obeys perfectly, lays down His life, resurrects, showing His, his, his power over sin and death of the grave, and then is raised and enthroned at the right hand of God. The Bible warns us in Hebrews then not to abandon faith in Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews chooses to quote the Old Testament when he warns us not to abandon faith in Jesus. And you know one of the passages that he chooses to quote in that warning to us? Psalm 95. He quotes Psalm 95 and the reminder that they not have a failure to enter into God's rest as God's people Israel had failed to do in Moses' day. He says in chapter 3 and verse 12, not to have an unbelieving heart which leads you to fall away from the living God and forfeit your rest. Okay, so what Jesus is promising, what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that with the coming of Jesus, we receive right now and the here and now some of the promises that God has made that have been promised from the very beginning. If you have put your faith in Christ, there is a very real sense in which you have been united to Christ by faith and can experience rest for your soul. There is a future aspect to this rest. We experience the Sabbath rest that Christ has won for us by His obedience in the here and now. But look around and tell me if we are receiving the full experience of rest. Ask our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine right now, if they are experiencing 
the fullness of Christ's rest? The answer to that question has to be no. There's something still to come. There is a future aspect, Hebrews recognizes, to that rest. The book of Hebrews says in chapter 4 and verses 8 to 11, for if, if Joshua had given them rest, okay, we looked at that passage of Scripture, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There remains, the Bible says here, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That Sabbath rest, the Bible tells us, is not going to be found here. The end-time vision of John expresses and pulls on threads from the book of Genesis because one of the things that John sees in John chapter 21 is what? A new heaven and a new earth. God's creation purposes restored. Romans chapter 8 recognizes this. Romans 8 recognizes that the whole creation groans. And why would Romans chapter 8 tell us that the creation itself groans? It's because the creation itself is infected and corrupted and corroded by the ravages of sin. This creation groans under the weight of the infection of sin, and yet it groans awaiting the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, which means that the earth and God's original vision for the earth will one day be perfectly fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. In the new heavens and the new earth, the earth is going to be filled with God's image bearers who reflect Him as as He intended them to do. God's uh, vision for, for the earth is going to be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth where the lion dies lies down with the lamb, where we experience peace and prosperity and stability in a way that will never be taken from us again. And you need to hear that this morning because those words are the words we need to cling to to have hope. This is a sad place. This is a place filled with hurt and injustice. And you may be the direct recipients of it, or you may feel it by proxy for other people in other other places, but we're not fully in the rest yet. But that rest, Christian people, is coming when you are redeemed and restored and the earth is redeemed and restored. And so I would summarize all of this with this simple statement. Our quest for rest is completed in Christ.
let me offer then in closing a couple of conclusions. First of all, you may have noticed that I have not addressed the question of whether the first day of the week is the Christian Sabbath. There are a couple reasons I have not done that. Number one, time. (laughs) There's just not enough time to talk about everything that needs to be talked about. Number two, I didn't want in in this sermon for a, a point that's argued to distract us from this beautiful theme woven throughout Scripture. There are good men and women on both sides of of that debate, and maybe we'll have time to come back and talk to it at a later date, but don't miss the theme because of the debate. There's something beautiful woven into this story if we have the eyes to see it. But let me say this. Let me say that at the very least, I think we would be wise to observe a Sabbath principle in our own time management for rest and worship. Some of us need to stop running around at a frenetic pace and rest. To not catch up on the week that has passed or get ahead on the week that's coming, but to rest. We live in a culture that prizes this bottled lightning approach to life. We live in a culture where if someone was to ask us if we had a busy week, we might even be ashamed to say no. Perhaps we should take this mindset and deliberately find ways to refuse it. To remember that we are finite creatures with limited resources. Your task list will never die. I can attest to that. You may be looking forward to that perfect weekend where I've got all the stuff around the house done. And then that thing breaks. And if you're like me, now you're going to spend a day pretending to fix it until you get to the end of the day and realize you're going to have to call someone anyway. Sometimes I think we need to deliberately and intentionally have a decreased productivity so that we can rest and remember that there is a rest to come that we cannot create through the industriousness of our own hands. We need to deliberately and intentionally remember that our value is not in what we can produce. A second conclusion that I'd like to offer, and this is an invitation for every single person in this room without exception this morning, Jesus offers it himself. It's the invitation that Jesus gives each and every one of us to rest. 
Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight are familiar to us. We have heard them many times. But I hope you hear them differently after what we've just talked about today. When Jesus stands up and says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a lot more behind what he said if you've just followed that theme from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus isn't just saying, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you a break. Jesus is saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what was lost at the beginning. And so much more. So to those of you who are here this morning and may not know Jesus, whether you realize it or not, you labor under the burden of your sin. You may just feel weighed down. You may not even have a, you may not have have been able to clearly articulate it in that way, but you labor under the burden of your sin. Sin. It is what separates you from a holy God and destines you for God's righteous condemnation. But God issues you this invitation in Christ. He says to sinners, Come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. What Jesus promises is that you can take the burden of your sin. And you can lay that down at the foot of his cross and that you can walk away unburdened by that sin and that guilt and that shame by simply putting your faith and your trust in the Christ who says, come to me. If you don't understand what that means or you want to talk more about it, talk to us after the service. We want you to know that. For those of us who are Christians, Jesus tells us, come all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We are, by nature, legalists. We are, by nature, people who receive grace and then constantly want to pay God back for it. How freeing would it be if you just believed Jesus this morning? That you could come to him as a sinner, as a struggler, and believe that his rest is promised to you. We're also reminded, though, that Jesus promises a future rest that's coming. It's a rest where all that is broken is made whole, where all that is old becomes new, where all that is at war finds peace. We can depend on that promise of Jesus because it flows from his heart. See, the following verse of Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, which, in which Jesus promises to give rest, is found in verse 29. 
He tells us why. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know why you can come to me for rest, Jesus is saying? Because that's an expression of my very heart for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to close with that in just a moment, but we're reading, uh, we're going to, those who want to, notice I said that, how I phrased that, those who want to, important phrase, I've got a book that we're going to be reading together this year that's taken from those two verses. And Pastor Joseph and I were talking about when we were going to give this book out, and, and jo- Pastor Joseph said, why don't we do it on... February 27th, and I said, that, that works great, not realizing until I looked at my preaching calendar that on February 27th, we would be talking about Genesis 2, 1 to 3, and God's rest. We need to believe Jesus for the offer he, he gives us. And so I encourage you, we'll say more about that in the announcement time, but I just want to encourage you that that's a way that we can grow in believing Jesus' promises for us. But for now, let's, let's close and ask God to help us receive what he freely gives. Father, we pray for those who are burdened this morning by the weight of their own sin that they would come to you and find rest. I pray for those of us who are Christians, who have come to you for rest, who constantly find ourselves working to gain your approval as if that was something we had to do. I pray that you would help us to come to you for rest. And Lord, as we experience the instability around us, the horrors of war, the fears for the future, the unsettledness of our hearts and our spirits. I pray that you would help us to look forward to a day that is coming, the day realized of John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth, the joys of the eternal new creation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.